This morning, we're going to take a look at something, and I won't tell you immediately what it is, but let's see. Maybe you can guess what it is from what I'm saying, because this thing that I'm talking about this morning is something that is inside of every single one of us. It's inside of you, and it's inside of me, and this thing keeps you from and causes you to. It keeps you from and causes you to. What do I mean by that? This thing keeps you from celebrating other people's success. This thing keeps you from initiating an apology even when you know that you're wrong or when you know that you're not wrong. This thing keeps you arguing your point even after you realize that you have a weak point. But you're still going to continue to argue it because you've started, so you better carry on. This thing keeps you from admitting that you've lost. It keeps you from admitting weakness or that you need help that you've got an addiction, that you've got something that needs work. This thing keeps you from admitting that you don't know what you're doing, even though everyone in the room can see you don't know what you're doing. It keeps you from admitting it. This thing keeps you from being honest with yourself and with other people. And this thing keeps you from learning new things because you want everyone around you to understand that you know everything. And so you're not prepared to learn things. This thing causes you to feel good when others fail. You know that little feeling inside when someone else doesn't do too well and it's just, okay, it's not so bad for me. It causes you to cheat before you allow yourself to lose. Causes you to lie about your past and about a failed marriage or studies or work. Causes you to buy things to impress people who aren't even paying attention to the things that you're buying. Do you know what I'm talking about? Some of you. That's what I'm talking about. Okay. This morning, we're shining the spotlight on this thing, this thing of pride. And it's written like that on purpose. There's a capital I, and it's right in the middle of the word. Because pride at its core is all about me. It's all about I. You know, we call you an I specialist. Uh, It's just all about me and and what's happening in my world, and I'm right, and I deserve this. And and, and pride is a very deadly thing. And a lot of people, again, like those other things we looked at, you say, well, that's not me. I'm not a prideful person. I'm not an arrogant person. I'm not a conceited person. That's other people. But I'm sure from that list, we understand a little bit what pride is. Let me say this, and this is what C.S. Lewis said. He said, unchastity. Now, for those of you who don't know, unchastity is an extremely old English word that means you're not being very good in the sexual sense, okay? Uh, You're being naughty. Okay, unchastity. It's a very polite way of saying it. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison to pride. They've got nothing on the beast that is pride. He goes on to say this. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other sin. And it's absolutely true. And I'm sure by the end of this morning, you'll be able to agree with that. You know that feeling? You know that feeling when you've had that little fight with someone? 
and you're sitting there and it's awkward and it's tense and maybe hours have gone by or maybe days have gone by and maybe she's in the kitchen cooking and you're sitting there and there's this weird silence and you know, you've got this feeling inside of you that just says, you know what, this can all be over if you just say sorry. This can all be over if you just admit that you were wrong and we can move on from this. And there's something inside of every single one of us that is just, no, but I wasn't wrong. They were wrong. If anyone must come and apologize, it should be from their side, not from my side. And that's human nature, and that's a problem. Because what that is, is pride. You're recognizing it. That's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to dig it up, uncover it, shine a light on it, and then tell it to get lost. Okay. If we can learn to recognize pride's ugly head in us quickly, then we can fight the fire with water. If we can fight the fire of pride with water, the water that fights that fire is humility. That's how we put out pride. When we can recognize it in ourselves and say, this is ugly, I should say sorry. Or you know what, then just do it. It's, it's humility that is the water for the fire that rages up inside of us. That is pride. So the Greek word for humility is this, to bring low. That's the definition, to bring low. Or in a more English translation or definition, it says this, or to have a modest view of one's own importance. Now, that's a difficult thing, and that is extremely counter-cultural. Our society says if you're the boss, you're the boss. Act like you're the boss. Show that you're the boss. Make decisions like you're the boss. You're the head of the home. Be a leader. You're the head of the home. You make decisions. You carry out the discipline. You make all the hard calls. And our society says get to the top of every pile. You want to be at the top. You've got to, you've got to make progress. You've got to get there. But, but humility is exactly the opposite of that. And it's saying you need to go under. You need to bring yourself low under other people. That's tough. That is not what any of us maybe would like to hear, but it's exactly what that picture is. It's more of you and less of me. So when I feel like I need to apologize and I just can't, and pride saying, no, 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 you're justified. You just sit tight. She's going to come to you. It's the humility that says, you know what? I'm going under this. This isn't about me being the head of the home or the boss or being right in a conversation. This is about me being humble in my own heart and being able to deal with this thing. Relationships mend in an instant. I'm sure so many of us can testify to that. But humility, and this is the problem. You see, you get a, you get a definition like this, and it's to bring low, to go under, almost to submit to. And, and people think, well, I'm not going to be anyone's doormat. No one's going to walk all over me. If that's what humility is, if that's the opposite of pride, then I'm not interested in that. But humility isn't being a doormat. It's not running yourself down. It's not being weak. God doesn't give you points if you think less of yourself or you treat yourself poorly. That's not a tick in your book that God's ticking. Again, and this is the second one of C.S. Lewis, but he said some really incredible things. And this is another thing that he said. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. We don't think lowly of ourselves. That doesn't get us points with God. We just think of ourselves less, and we think of other people more. Humility means recognizing that you're not always right. 
Humility means even if you are right, we don't make someone else feel small if they're wrong. Humility sometimes is recognizing that there's a bigger plan for your life than the one that you currently think you're on. It's sometimes submitting yourself to the one who knows you best and loves you most and being humble now to say, you created me, and if you created me, you must know what I'm here to do, what I'm here to be, what I'm here to achieve, who I'm here to reach, and humbling yourself under God's plan for your life, which is sometimes quite a difficult thing for us to do. So what I want to do this morning is fairly briefly just go through three things And so I'm not dealing with pride as a heading. I'm dealing with humility because I want to deal with it from a positive point of view. And there's three areas where we really need to grasp this thing of humility. And remember humility being the water that you throw onto the fire of pride. We need to capture this stuff. Humility with yourself is the first one. How do you like that picture? Romans 12 verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, this is Paul speaking to the church in Rome, do you not, uh, sorry, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. What on earth is he talking about? Think of yourself with sober judgment. Well, when you've been drinking and you're not thinking of yourself with sober judgment, you can Think of yourself more highly than you should. So I'm told. By Ellison. (laughs) When you have a few drinks, you can think more highly of yourself. Do you know that even if you're a shy person and you have a couple of toots, all of a sudden it's not a problem to talk to any girl or any guy. All of a sudden you've got confidence you never had before. And you're not seeing yourself the way that you really are. You know that when you've had a couple of drinks, you can think that you're stronger than you are. People who drink a lot are often aggressive for that very reason. You don't see yourself soberly. You see yourself as stronger than you are. You will pick a fight and you will win with anybody. It makes no difference. Come. But it's not seeing yourself the way that you really are. Your inhibitions tend to disappear. You can think you're a better driver when you've been drinking than you really are. But guess what? Accidents happen for people who think they are good drivers and who are driving under the influence. That's the bottom line. So he's chosen his words very carefully. Think of yourself with sober judgment. When you've been drinking, you, think you're, you don't think about yourself as you really are. You think about yourself as you sometimes want to be. Some people don't even have to be drinking to think that they're the absolute best thing since sliced bread. That's true as well. You get people who don't even need to have a dorp to think that they can take on the world. My experience is this. Most people are in the other camp. They don't think they're amazing. Most people think they're less than. There's more people that are in the camp of, I'm actually not good enough, I'm not worthy, I'm not sure that I'm a good parent. I'm not sure I'm a good child. I'm not sure that I'm adequate or I'm good enough at the workspace that I'm in. Most people fall into that category of people. But can I tell you something? Neither of those views, thinking highly of yourself and thinking lowly of yourself, are healthy or helpful. Neither of them are godly and neither of them will take you forward. Paul says, think of yourself with sober judgment. Now the key to judging yourself honestly 
and under, is understanding the basis of your self-worth. And here's the basis of your self-worth. If you have put your faith in Christ, it's this. Your identity is in Christ. Your self-worth is linked to your identity in Christ. We don't have worth because of what we can do, what we can achieve, how much we earn, what we're driving, where we're living. That's not where we get our sense of self-worth from. We have worth and value because God sees worth and value in us. All you have to do is take it to a real family, a family with mom and dad and kids in an ideal world because it doesn't always work like this, unfortunately. But you'll know that a parent doesn't love their kid because they can play piano well or because they can jump high or because they can swim five lengths when all the other kids can swim four. That's not what makes us love our children, right? And God is exactly the same. He looks at us and it's not about what you can do or achieve or how much money is in your bank account. But our self-worth comes from being a child of the king. That's it. Makes sense. All right. So that's humility with yourself. Because it's an important thing that we don't, we're not prideful about that. But we're not doormats that don't understand what humility really is. The next thing I want to speak to is this, humility with others. Now, James is a very practical book. We've gone through it a little bit, but I never went through chapter 4. But chapter 4 is going to come out a bit this morning. So James 4, verses 1 to 3 says this, What's causing the quarrels and fights among you? Now, remember, he's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to a church. Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it from them. Yet you don't have what you what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. And then a little further on, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So that's an interesting verse, and I think that speaks, like I said, he's, he's writing that letter to a church. He's not writing that to people who don't understand God, who have never heard of Jesus, or don't know how this thing works. Um, he's writing to a church, and he's saying, what is going on here? It just seems like, like we want everyone else's stuff, and we'll fight, and we'll do things to get it. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul speaks about how we're each running our own race, and many of us know that picture we start at different places, and we know that. Some of us start in poor families. Some of us start in wealthier families or middle families. Some of us come from very loving and caring and functional parents. Some of us are born into absolutely dysfunctional families. And you know what? There's nothing you can do about where you were born. And That's just not something anybody has any control over. So we've got a starting time and we've got an ending time. But the point is this. In between those two things, there's a race to be run. And it's not helpful to compare yourself to other people. Unfortunately, no matter how little or how much there is, isn't it human nature to do exactly that? Why do they have that? And we're stuck here with this. Now, we know it's not healthy to compare ourselves with other people. But it doesn't stop us. It's like saying it's unhealthy to eat pizza. Everyone's going to do it anyway. Okay, except Richard, he's so good. But everyone else will. Okay, so we know it's not a good thing, but it's something that very often we do. And sometimes we look at our friends and we see, we see what Sarah was mentioning here when she was talking about the offering. We see a great car, 
We see good grades. We see a lovely home. We see kids that listen. We see a fantastic bod. And we're like, oh, how do they get that? Look what they eat. And, and how, how does this all work out? It's not fair. I need to have that. How come they've got this? I've seen the way that person works. They're lazy. And why do they have so much? This isn't right. And there's a sense of pride and entitlement that creeps into our hearts when we start to compare ourselves to other people. You know what doesn't help comparing? Social media. I've been on a little thing about social media lately, but I'm not against it. Just be very clear. I think it's a great tool for communicating, and I think it's a great tool to use uh, if you use it the right way. But you know the problem with social media is that everyone snaps their happy moments, is that everyone snaps the, the winning thing or that fabulous meal that gets presented to your table and you get that, or your coffee that has a beautiful pattern in it or whatever. There's nothing wrong with that except that that's how you think everyone's life is. So you take a look at that and you see these kids that have got medals around their necks and you go, my kids don't have medals around their necks. What's happening here? Take a look at this meal and you say, George, my, my wife doesn't cook me meals like that. And we see a picture that is completely unrealistic. And no one is going to take photos. No one's going to go and like, we just lost a tennis match. Come, losers, selfie, everyone. All the losers get together. Okay, there you go. Cool. Or, or my kids are crying. Oh, look, kids are crying again. Check this out, everyone. No one's going to take those photos. Because we want to project a certain thing. And we want to project the, the highlights of our life. That's really what it's for. But it's so difficult because we can compare and you know what? Pastors have this as well, can I tell you? Because after a Sunday, I get on Facebook, and I just see photos from all the churches. And it's like, had an amazing thing. 450 people came to the front this Sunday. I'm like, oh. And they're like, oh, look at the decor. Look at the money. Look at the lights. Look at the, you know, that's the reality of these things. Because we see people's highlights, but we don't see their journey. So the fact is, no one has your start in life. No one else has your personality no one else has your issues and your baggage. So why do we keep looking over the fence and saying, I wouldn't mind some of that for me? You don't know their situation and their journey. And I'm willing to put money on the fact that if you could live in their shoes for a day, at the end of that day, you'd choose your shoes. Every time. But we look, and you know what that is? It's a pride that wells up inside of us. And that's what, that's what Paul was talking about. And he says, you're jealous. And, and you make a plan to get these things. As if, you, as if you really need them. When we start to desire the things that other people have, it actually opens a door in our life. It actually opens a door for pride to come straight in. I'm not saying there's something wrong, there's, there's, you know, that you can't say, you know, one day I'd like to have that. And you work towards it and you get there. That's not a problem. But you know, that's not often the way things work. Often the way things work is, man, that is so nice. I really love that. I should have that. You know, I should have that. I work hard. I do everything that I should do. I should have that. I, how can I be driving the skadonk of a car and, and trying to get from A to B and there's no airbags? And you know, I, Of course I should be driving that car. And you justify it and you build it up until it's not just a thing of, hey, that's a lack of thing. Now it's a, I need that thing. God, you hear my needs. Give me my needs. And sometimes God says, no, that isn't what you need. You think that's what you need, but it isn't what you need. And like a good parent, he'll just say no sometimes. And that's horrible to hear, 
but it's good that we get answers from God. And no is an answer. We spoke about that a couple of months ago. So pretty soon what started off as a nice to have becomes something that damages your life. And you know, the thing is this. This pride that wells up in us, that makes us want things that we don't have, that's the root for all the other sins. That's the seed that gets in and starts to germinate. That's, you know, when you look at any of the crime stats in this country, or in any country, it makes no difference where you are, any war, any murders, any rapes, any, anything, it all stems from that same thing of, you know what, that's so nice. Why don't I have that? I need that thing. And then, of course, on a global scale, you'll go and you'll take the oil. But on a family scale, or, or on, a, on a relational level in a community, well, I can't afford that, and I'm never, gonna go, I'm never going to, so I'm going to steal it. I'm going to take that when no one's looking. Because I should have that as well. That's a pride that says, you deserve that. Entitlement comes from pride. I should have that. I've been working hard. And that's where all these terrible, terrible things come from. These rapes and murders and wars. And it's, it's just disgusting. But maybe you're thinking, that sounds a bit extreme. I'm not going to do anything like that. You wouldn't ever steal or kill someone to get what you want from them. But let me tell you, everything starts somewhere. And what I'm saying is this recognize that inside of each of us are these selfish desires, these, this chance for these seeds to, to take root and to, to land on soil and to begin to grow inside of us. But James tells us how we're supposed to deal with these things when they come into us. He says this, you don't have what you want because you don't, ask God. And when you do ask God, your motives are all wrong. I'm definitely guilty of that. You know, there's a lot of stuff that I need, and I can even justify it and say, you know, if I had this, the church would be better off. Lord, did you hear that? Let's do a deal. But I know. I mean, if I had to be really honest with myself, it's just because I'd like to have something. We need to be real and honest enough with ourselves and God to know our motives when we ask. Often what we ask, and this is what he said, often what we want is just more worldly pleasure. Things that bring us temporary happiness. But if you've ever wanted something physical to bring you happiness, you'll know this. As soon as you've got it, the void opens again. As soon as you've got the iPhone 5, the iPhone 6 comes out. As soon as it's just a never-ending spiral of aspiring to get more and to keep up with people. As soon as you've got SABC, you want Mnet. As soon as you've got Mnet, you want uh, DSTV Compact. And then you want the Premium. And then you want to get Netflix on top of the premium because there's always something more that you want to get. You're never satisfied and you always deserve it. There's nothing wrong with having lots of stuff. But here's the thing. Our joy and our fulfillment must never come from those things. The problem that is that we seek stuff more than we seek God. That's often the thing. If I had to take my prayer life and say, how much of it is stuff and how much of it is people and how much of it is this and that, I could probably honestly say that there's a fair amount there that's stuff-related. And you can seek God for stuff sometimes more than you can seek Him for, uh, for healing or for your nation or for your church or for personal things. And, uh, and it's a problem. Paul understood this and he, he wrote these words to the church in Philippi. It's just so powerful. I'm not saying this because I am in need. For I've learned to, to be content whatever the circumstances. 
I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. How amazing would things be if we could have that attitude? How amazing would it be if we could say, what I've got now, that is sufficient. That is enough. I don't need to keep on aspiring to that. Because you know what? When you seek God's kingdom, somehow, I don't know how it works, but there's, there's blessing that just comes from that. We don't seek the blessing. But somehow when we put God first, things fall into place. I'm sure many people can testify to that here. So the problem, now here's the big deal about this, and this is why I'm focusing on it a bit. The problem in putting so much emphasis on what you've achieved and accumulated is that there's more and more chance that you'll begin to think highly of yourself, more highly of yourself than you ought to. See, when you've got a big car and you drive past a little car, there's something inside you that goes, I like this. This is nice. When you can walk into a clothing store and it's a nice clothing store and you don't have to go into the other clothing store, there's something in you that's like, cool, this is good. There's something inside of us that just likes to be puffed up. And this is what God is opposed to. Because when we think too highly of ourselves compared to others, here's the problem. We interfere with the highest law, which is love. See, as soon as you put yourself above other people, you lose that love connection. And it becomes a them and us. It becomes a me and them. It becomes I'm better, they're worse, shame, they're lovely. Let's spend a little time with them. But you miss an element of love. And that is what God has a big problem with. So we need to be sure we don't come to a place that we struggle to love all people. Here's the brilliant thing. Jesus was God's son. And it was not beneath him to show love to murderers, liars, prostitutes, drunkards, tax collectors. It wasn't beneath the Son of God to show absolute, unconditional, incredible love to those people. Who are we that we are above showing love to people like that? It's insane. When you hear it like that, it just makes you think, it's true, hey, how can we be like that? How can we? I want to give you two verses before I move on to the next thing. And again, this is Paul writing to two churches, one in Philippi, one in Ephesus. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, this is so tough, consider others better than yourselves. That's unqualified. That is difficult sometimes. And then to, the, to a church in Ephesus, he wrote this in chapter 4, verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Oh. Listen, the Bible can't be more clear about this thing. Humility is a big deal, and we're going to get to exactly why that's a big deal now um, as we take a look at this. Humility with God. We've spoken about humility with ourselves. We've spoken about humility with other people, and I'm just going to finish off quickly now with humility with God. James 4, 8 to 10. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up in honor. Coming to God requires humility. 
Because it means acknowledging that He is the Creator and we are the creation. I think sometimes we like to think we're the Creator in some ways, in the way that we live and think and act. But it's coming to Him and saying, You made me. You've got the plan. I want to submit to the plan that you've got. It's being humble enough to admit that His best is better than our good. That His plans for us are better than the plans for ourselves. And this is what the verse is saying. Only once you go on your knees before God can He put you on your feet. That is a critical step. It cannot be missed. You cannot say, yes, okay, Jesus, I'll follow what you want, but I'm still doing this. It doesn't work like that. Only once you get on your knees can God put you on your feet. Now, Jesus had just the most incredible, radical approach to humility that there is. This is how I'm closing because this is where we're getting our example from. This is where we're getting our lead from. You want to throw water on the monster that is pride. You want to throw water on that fire. Let's get our cue from what Jesus did. You remember that story where he washed his disciples' feet? We talk about it, you know, and it's it's a story of of servanthood and, and, you know, a king being a servant and that sort of thing. But I think you miss the disgustingness of the story quite often. It is disgusting. Sorry. I mean, can I line up 10 people here and just let's all take off our shoes and someone, can, can you just wash them quickly? I mean, it's actually probably worse for the people having their feet washed some, sometimes. I think, you know, oh, no, I don't want anyone to see that. But here's Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, come down from heaven to earth to be with his creation uh, to lead us. But not just that. Okay, forget that. Maybe they didn't know that he was God. Maybe they just... So you still got this incredibly important teacher, this rabbi, this incredible man. They've watched him with these same hands that he now wants to touch their athlete's foot and their dirty, grimy toenails. It's the same hands he used to heal people. That he touched their eyes and they became, they could see. And he touched their leprosy and they were healed. And you know that this guy's amazing. You know that he's like nothing you've ever seen and now he wants to wash your feet. That's an incredible story of humility. The greatest among them washes their feet. And you know what he says to them once he's done? Go and do the same. He says, you know what you just saw me do now? Now you must go and do that. But he's not saying go and literally wash people's feet. He's saying you need to serve people because my kingdom is not like the kingdom on this place. My kingdom doesn't say we get to positions of power and then we are entitled and then everyone else under us must do things. My kingdom's not like that. My kingdom's you must always serve. You never outgrow serving. You never come, become too big to humble yourself, to be a help to someone. Never, ever. So it's quite an incredible thing. And he tells us to go and do the same. If you do this thing, it will break the power of pride in your life. If we can embrace this thing of humility, of coming low, of submitting, of going under, and saying, it's not about me being right. It's not about me getting what I want. I can apologize. I can say that I'm sorry. I can do this. It will break the power of pride in your life. And that's the example we take from Jesus to defeat pride. He displayed ultimate humility, the ultimate bringing low in lowering himself. Check this out. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests only. But take an interest in others too. 
You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. What attitude is that? Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself. So he became human, but then there's more. He humbled himself in obedience to God. And how far did he go? He died a criminal's death on a cross. If there was ever an example of radical humility, it was the example of Jesus and what he did. Jesus initiated reconciliation. If you've ever been in a fight with someone, if you're right, you don't, you don't initiate reconciliation. The wrong person does that. And so Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit are all talking, and, 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 you know, and I don't know that it went exactly like this, but I can just imagine, and God's just saying, okay, we need to go down there. We need to make a, a relationship possible for us and them properly. You need to go and die for them. You need to be born and then you need to die. And he's like, but they're not even going to understand it. That's fine. You've got to do it anyway. But they're not going to appreciate it. It's okay. You must just go do it anyway. Can you imagine Jesus taking on human form and dying for us, initiating reconciliation from heaven's side? Jesus was right and Jesus was wronged. And he initiated reconciliation. And then he says to us, go do the same thing. If there's one thing you get from this morning, just one thing, it's this. Please, let it be this. Embrace radical humility. It will strengthen and repair almost any relationship that you can have on this planet. If you can bring yourself to a point of saying, I'm sorry. You know how we often apologize to ourselves, I'm sorry. But you know what? If you did do that, then isn't it true? That's not what I'm talking about. It mustn't have a little spike attached at the end of it. But if we can embrace radical humility, that beast of pride, we can put it to sleep. I wish we could kill it, but while we're on this planet, we can't. But we can certainly silence it. We can certainly put water on those flames every time they come up inside of us and make us feel like we deserve more, we deserve better. We should have that too. If you can embrace this way of doing things, whether you're a Christian or not, it actually... See, if, you've got, if you're a Christian, you've got no excuse not to because you've seen the example of Jesus and he still commanded us to do the same. But if you're not a Christian and you're sitting here, can I tell you something? Embracing just this one principle of Christianity will change everything about your relationships. I guarantee it. If you can embrace this way of doing things, there's nothing, almost nothing, that can't be mended or fixed. But it's not easy. Your relationship with your parents would be better, with your kids would be better, with your husband or wife, your girlfriend or your boyfriend, colleagues, if we can embrace this. And that's what it comes down to. And I think maybe that's the, the bottom line of the message this morning. Makes sense? Okay. This is something we've got to deal with, and it's in all of us. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that one message is going to kill pride in all of our lives. But you know what? If it gets a ball rolling, if it starts a process of thought in your, in your mind that just helps you to recognize quicker, ah, oh, I don't want to say sorry. I'm right. She's wrong. If you can recognize that quicker and embrace radical humility, I promise you, I promise you, 
things will be better in your life just because of that. Because you're just saying, pride, you don't have the remote control. You don't control what I do. 